Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we will have honest, courageous, and fun conversations about how women are plugging into climate, energy, and sustainable solutions for the planet. I am your host, Megan Bennett, and on this podcast, I will be giving women who are doing the vital work of saving our planet a platform to share their stories, their ideas, and their dreams for a better future. And I hope these conversations will inspire us all to plug into our personal missions and expand what we think is possible for our families, our communities, our work, and ultimately our planet, starting today. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. The new moon is waxing, the corn is getting taller, the sunflowers are blooming, the raspberries are ripening, and the mornings are glorious and bright and warm. The kids are covered in paint from art camp. And I just want to hold on to these days, these precious fleeting days of summer in Ontario. And yet, I'm also feeling the existential crisis of the climate emergency almost every day now. It feels hot and heavy in my body. It feels like worry, rage, frustration, sadness, and exhaustion. And what I have been learning as I read and listen to what folks are saying about a feminine and feminist approach to climate leadership is that it is often these feelings, these hot emotions, this grief, and the deep love and desire for what we need to save and for whom we want to save it that is at the heart of a feminine approach to climate leadership. Britt Ray is an author and researcher working at the forefront of climate change and mental health. She is currently a human and planetary health fellow at Stanford University and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She was on a panel discussion with Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, one of the co-editors of the All We Can Save anthology, and they were talking about the soul work of climate. And I asked Britt what she saw as the unique opportunities of the feminine and feminism in this work. Yeah, beautiful. I've learned a lot from the way that All We Can Save has articulated it. And it, it brought forth some feelings that were already very true and just living in the way that I can see people practicing this in the world. I think mm-hmm. it, it, it includes collaboration, linking arms with others, partnership over domination, right? So really not the hero's journey, but all of us moving together in collectives. And that, that is a massive narrative challenge because we live in a culture that likes to talk about the hero's journey. And so it really does push against some norms that we are taught and unconsciously bring into ourselves as being the, the ways through challenge and hardship. So that's key. Intersectionality is key understanding the justice implications of the work rather than looking at this, let's say, as a management problem, right? Like a techno, uh, yes, of course, there's techno-optimistic versions, and, and but also just technologies are very important. And yet getting the existential layers, not just looking at this as a management problem in order to move on with the progress and growth society as we have it, but really valuing the feelings and not being afraid of the mm. feelings that tell us that it's existential along with the science, right? Um, And so I think by beginning with a confrontation with the emotions and learning how to value them and give them permission for being there, that's part of the feminist approach 
rather than, again, warding off the response or not seeing these feelings as important information for the work itself. Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Dr. Katherine Wilkinson are co-editors of the best-selling anthology, All We Can Save. And they describe in the introduction that they are seeing a renaissance in climate leadership that is more characteristically feminine and more faithfully feminist, rooted in compassion, connection, creativity, and collaboration, open to people of any gender. Ayanna and Katherine describe that this renaissance has a few important characteristics. First, there is a clear focus on making change rather than being in charge. Second, there is a commitment to responding to the climate crisis in ways that heal systematic injustices, inclusion, and frontline communities. Third, there is an appreciation of heart-centered and not just head-centered leadership. Finally, there is a recognition that building community is a requisite foundation for building a better world. So today's episode of Plugged In is all about exploring climate feminism and feminine leadership and how it shows up, what it looks like in practice, and the potential it holds for organizations, communities, businesses, and national and international climate negotiations. Let's hear from my guests and what they think about climate feminism. Tanse, Jordan Bernoff, Nesikasen, Sagitawakotse. Hello, how how are you? How is everybody? My name is Jordan Burnoff. I come from the community Cree name being Sagatoak, which means where the rivers open up, um, otherwise known as Isla Cross in Treaty 10 territory in northern Saskatchewan. I'm a member of Black Lake First Nation. I'm a Cree woman, Nihio Squil. Um yeah, I, I call my home, I make my home in Saskatoon in Treaty 6 territory. Um, and kind of go back and forth between Isla Cross and Saskatoon for, for my work and family. Climate feminism means a future where women are safe and understood and equitably included in the conversation and in the action and, you know, a part of decision making in a very big and real sustainable way. Hi, Megan. Thank you for having me. I'm Kimberly Nicholas. Please call me Kim. I'm a professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden. What does climate feminism mean to you? Making space for everyone to be leaders in the climate movement, especially women and those who have been marginalized. Hi, my name is Desiree Norwegian. I'm a a charter professional accountant. I am her. Let's see, what else do I need to tell you? I am currently in Westree, Ontario, uh, very much in the bush. I enjoy the outdoors. I do lots of hunting, fishing, uh, quadding, sledding. So this would make sense for me to live here. Desiree Norwegian is a member of the Ludley Q First Nation. She is part of the Dene clan, meaning the land of the people from Northwest Territories. Her work is to strive for Indigenous engagement, rights, equality, reconciliation, and gender diversity, and to teach about the advantages that nuclear power plays in building a clean energy future. When I asked Desiree about feminine leadership in this context, this is part of what she shared. I find that being a woman in my line of work is much easier to talk with people. And I 
I have people, people come to me now, right? I, it's not so much, I don't have to go to them. They'll come to me and chat with me. Hey, you know, I, I heard you talk, but it's that passion. It's that vision. It's, it's showing that feminine side of myself and opening myself up that people attract themselves to because I'm like anybody else, right? I'm, I'm a, a woman just striving to, to make a difference and be more and do more. I find that they come to me instead of me having to push to them. Miranda Baksh is a social entrepreneur, climate action catalyst, and one of York University's top 30 changemakers under 30. She currently works at Environmental Defense and is a board member at Climate Action Network. She co-founded a nonprofit organization based in her hometown of Brampton, Ontario, called the Community Climate Council. I asked her who she co-founded this group with. Yeah, so we have Mia, Sam, Anetta, and Divya. All of us are from Brampton, funny enough, except one from Caledon. Sam is from Caledon. And when I was in my master's, they were all in their undergrad, and we're all women. And, you know, just going, thinking about female power in the climate movement, it was just amazing to think that these five women came together and did that. We were actually called the climate change hers at first. <laughs> so climate changers, but with an H. Um, and we, we right off the bat noticed we were like one of the few all-female identifying groups in the room. So it was pretty cool. And this is what climate feminist leadership looks like for Miranda. Empathy and community building. I think just showing that we care and, and seeing other women care, that's what draws community together, really, is just showing that we all care about the same things. When we think about empathy, there is so much literature out there with female action and empathy. And so I think having an empathy-based grounding in our work could be a form of that action. I also spoke with Shauna Henderson, the CEO of Blue House Energy. Blue House Energy provides online training in building science and energy efficiency for tradespeople, renovators, contractors, and energy efficiency professionals. Here she is. Shauna Henderson. She, her, I live just outside Halifax in Mi'kma'ki. I'm curious as a woman-led business, woman-owned business, woman-founded business, what do you think the role or opportunity of the feminine leadership and, and also climate feminism as an approach um, is for Canada as we work towards addressing the climate crisis and move towards a clean and just energy transition. What do, what do you think that looks like? We need to see more women swinging hammers, using drills, whatever it is, putting up walls, tearing down walls. We need to see more women doing that. But we also see, need to see more women leading businesses in this sector. Not managing them, leading them. Not being administration, leading them. So women owned businesses, women-led businesses are key to this. And then when we wrap in the whole intersectionality piece, whether it's from, uh, you know, from um, marginalized communities or focusing on environmental or climate change issues, that becomes a really incredibly rich mix. And how do you think businesses that are going to be led by women are going to do things differently? Well, how about some of the women-led businesses that I work with have explicit policies for pregnant women 
and breastfeeding women that they are, you know, they actually have explicitly laid out, this is what it's like. This is what we need. This is what you need. This is how we're going to manage this, this period in your life when you are building another person and nurturing them to the point where they can then be slightly independent, (laughs) (laughs) but not, not on your hip or not needing you as much. Um, So there's that piece. Um, And then also women leaders understand what flex time means and why you need it. Now, I'm still curious about the traits of feminine climate leadership. Here is Kim Nicholas again, author of Under the Sky We Make, with her perspective. I guess my um, impression or my experience would be that feminine leadership tends to be more collaborative and more inclusive, that it's less about sort of one person at the front on stage or in the spotlight. And it might be about more people contributing their gifts and skills collaboratively, maybe maybe more behind the scenes, maybe in the spotlight as well. I mean, certainly I welcome having more women on stage and actually, you know, leading these conversations publicly. Maybe more of a focus on actually protecting and caring for people and nature and each other as a core value and a goal that many are working towards. And so I guess a real justice focus I see is quite uh, essential to climate feminism or the climate movement in, in general. But, you know, that's everything from recognizing historical inequalities and exploitations to trying to correct them and write them in the present and sort of create new ways of relating to each other that are more inclusive and that are more fair and participatory. Jordan builds on this idea that the feminine tends to prioritize caring for people and how important this is when designing and implementing climate solutions that are just and don't cause further harm. Well, I think a a really beautiful part that we often overlook is the place that women hold in community. And if you look at kinship and like traditional governance models or even the evolution of governance now, you know, we're, we're going back to a place where women are part of the conversation where, you know, the inequities of gender are slowly, slowly starting to like come out and you're seeing some transition. But the place in which women exist is, you know, our communities are built around women, around children, around young people. Um, because women naturally, we're the life givers, um, we're the protectors of water. And we're the land users, right? We were the harvesters. We were the um, communities were kind of built around us. And so I think a lot of the ways in which women in FEMS exist in our communities, that's how we should start looking at these different sectors that we exist in, right? All of these institutions that kind of govern us, we're missing the human component. And I think that's what women bring to the conversation is the reality of every situation that there's people involved in these conversations. There's people involved in, you know, the consequences of our decisions. People are on the other side of those decisions. And I think, you know, patriarchy and capitalism have masked that a little bit. And I think that is one of the key reasons why why women are so important in this conversation is 
you know, just inherently being life givers, being mothers, being, um, you know, the kind of the, the center of a community holding things together. That's why women are important in this space for sure. Jordan shared how one of her mentors and favorite climate feminists, Melina Labukan Massimo, shows up in this work. Yeah, she's just an incredibly grounded and, you know, very insightful and calm leader. And for me, the energy space, climate action, like it can be quite stressful. It can seem so daunting. It can you know, just be very overwhelming sometimes. And to see women like Molina, who, you know, lead with such grace, but also extreme power and just seeing like, man, she's just a powerhouse, like a force to be reckoned with, right? And you see that in the work that she's done in the oil sands with, you know, one of the one of the bigger um, solar projects to happen in, in Lubicon First Nation in her community she led that work, you know, and really amplifying the voice of her community to say, you know, this is a really, really dirty method of creating energy. And there has to be, there are other solutions and we need to start paying attention to that. You know, not only doing that for her community, but taking that nationwide and even internationally to be able to say, look, Indigenous people need to be a part of this work. Um, She also is leading the work with Indigenous Climate Action's Just Transition Guide. Um, and that's a guide for, you know, BIPOC people to, to be a part of the transition. And so, yeah, just I can go on all day about how incredible this woman is. But I think the key things are just, you know, how how she leads and how she carries herself in, in doing this work. And, um, you know, there's a lot of women who carry that same grace. and incredible power being able to you know being in being in these spaces um in a very big way but also in like a very respectful and and humble humble way the grace the power the resilience brit talks about the feminine being more comfortable in the constants of change and wow how important is that going to be in this marathon of battling the climate crisis it is about enduring and it is about regenerating and it's about working with the constant of change, even yeah. in, in the midst of terrible truths, which I think is, is again, you know, whenever you see sometimes doomish publications authored by often men who are considerably privileged and from more or less typically in Northern and Western countries, identifying moments at which it's all going to be lost. So let's give into it or let's just get ready for societal yeah. collapse or whatever it might be. And yeah. there have been many feminist and feminine and, you know, responses. And I also don't mean, like, I think that of course, anyone of any gender can embody masculinity and femininity. It's not just about tying this to like a narrow conception of, of who uh, upholds these, these values, of course. Um, yeah. But there's been a real demonstration whenever this happens of, of a feminist response of batting that down and getting us to a more accurate place of living in the tension, living in that gray zone across the black yeah. and the white and working yeah. no matter what happens. At 
At international climate negotiations, climate feminism is alive and well at the side events and on the streets, but in the traditional places of power, it can be sometimes harder to spot. But Kim Nicholas shares this important example. I would say Christiana Figueres could be an example of climate feminism. And I mean, she was so instrumental in actually getting the Paris Agreement adopted. And I think one key to her success was her engaging with people on a human level, connecting with people emotionally, as well as over shared values and priorities. And so there's a lot of skill diplomacy that goes into that, but there's also just a lot of um, emotional intelligence and awareness that unfortunately maybe gets to, hasn't been included as much as it should be. And I think that's one role that climate feminism can, can contribute, among others. I asked Jordan about her experience at COP26. If there were any moments where she was seeing climate feminism in action on that international climate negotiation stage. Honestly, not on the stage. I would say, you know, I, I guess not directly on stage, but I, I think, you know, in the small side conversations that happen, especially, and, and maybe I am biased because I did spend a lot of time at the Indigenous Peoples Pavilion, but there was definitely, you can see like Indigenous BIPOC women, you know, just scheming, just plotting world domination and solutions to climate action. It was so badass. And that was the most exciting part for me to just like see that and experience that and also be a part of that, you know, and so many young women. It was really, really exciting. Um, I was also a part of a uh, an interesting panel with um, some women from around the world um, on SDG 7. Um, and this was with Student Energy and, and uh, Catherine McKenna. Um, and so she led the conversation on, you know, getting women a part of the clean energy climate conversation. So um, if we're talking about stages, that was one of a few that I witnessed and actually got to be a part of. So that was an exciting one. Climate feminism can look like creating and holding safe and brave spaces for a diversity of voices and solutions. We can learn a lot about this from the youth movement as well. Again, at the COP, I mean, the last COP I went to in person was in Bonn in 2017. And there I really see that the youth are movement and the youth, there's a particular constituency, a group that's actually a member of the climate agreement or the conference of the parties that are much better at being inclusive. I mean, just like the body language and the way people were sitting and the way they were talking to each other and connecting versus like all these white dudes in business suits on their laptops by themselves was really striking contrast at that meeting. I think they had more creative ways of sharing space and being more conscious about not taking excessive space or being aware of, you know, stepping forward and stepping back is something I think activism teaches and, and trains people in. So the self-awareness to know how much space you're taking and to consciously hand over the mic to others and to start the conversation actually with those who are often most marginalized. I know that studies have shown that if you have a, a lecture, for example, and then you have a question period, if you have a woman ask the first question, there is gender balance in the questioning afterwards. But if you have a man go first, there is not. And so I think kind of consciously choosing to center and begin with and start the conversation with a traditionally less privileged voice is a really important practice that I, I see a lot of groups focus on and, you know, centering those who haven't had the mic as much before um, 
and just having, I mean, creative ways of actually amplifying. Also, I'd say more, a lot more embodied, like more dancing and singing and creative, uh, I mean, creating media attention by performing skits or having this dinosaur of the day award where like the worst loser at the cop who, you know, has the most ridiculous greenwashing promise is kind of publicly mocked in a really fun and creative way, but drawing attention to this serious issue or protests that, you know, have songs and catchy slogans. And I mean, it really sticks with me, um, an action that was organized right outside COP21 in Paris of youth, the young climate activists who were dressed in these business suits as like zombies marching towards a sign marked three degrees of warming, doom. And then, you know, just like head down, plodding ahead. And then this kind of um, creative bunch of activists who were physically pulling them with a rope and, you know, yelling at them and, you know, come this way, this way, come on, this is the way to go towards a path that was marked 1.5 degrees hope. And having some kind of creative visualization where they're actually using their bodies in a way to demonstrate the world that they want to see, I think is is really different, that it's not only ideas and words and PowerPoints and these sort of, um, you know, very traditional forms of expression that happen in these halls of power, but having something more colorful and creative and artistic and engaged and physical is is maybe something, uh, now I'm talking maybe more about the youth movement, but I think is also quite connected to feminist climate leadership. So what have I learned about how the feminine and climate feminism is showing up on the front lines of climate and energy transition work in Canada and beyond? First, empathy and emotional intelligence matter in everyday climate work. Holding space for diverse voices and bodies and organizations and businesses results in unique and valuable collaborations and new creative solutions. And finally, the emotional resilience that is built when we are doing this work together in community and paying attention to how it feels in our hearts and our bodies is powerful practice and will be necessary as this will be a long haul. So to end this episode, I'm going to bring it back to the initial inspiration and share the voice of Catherine Wilkinson speaking about the title of the book, All We Can Save. One of the biggest challenges of the All We Can Save anthology was finding a title. And it was actually a poem by the feminist poet Adrian Rich that unlocked the title Mm -hmm. All We Can Save because we were trying to thread this needle, right, between, you know, the Pollyanna optimism and the we're effed, right? And like what's in there. And and this closing stanza of, of her poem, natural resources is my heart is moved by all I cannot save. So Mm. much has been destroyed and I have to cast my lot with those who age after age perversely with no extraordinary power reconstitute the world. And like, that's it, right? Like we, yes, like our hearts have to be broken by all we cannot save all that's already lost, all that will be lost. And also our hearts have to be moved by all that we still can save together. Thank you for listening to Plugged In. This podcast has been created on the lands of Historic Treaty 18, 
on the traditional territory of the Petun and the Huron-Wendat nations. I'm grateful to our neighbors, the Chippewas of Saugeen First Nation and the Chippewas of Nawash Unceded First Nation, for their ongoing work to protect and care for the land, waters, and peoples here on the southern shores of Georgian Bay. Thank you to Ursilia Serafini and Summerhill for supporting me with the time to do this work. I'm so grateful to get the chance to be a resident podcaster at Summerhill. It's a real pleasure. For show notes and more information on the episodes, to join the All We Can Save book circle I lead, or to take part in a self-care for climate care retreat, please check out pluggedinpodcast.ca. There you can join my mailing list and follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. Look forward to having you join me next time. Thanks. Take care.